Welcome to Group Thinkers. I'm your host, Justin McCord. And uh, Ronnie, you're with me, first of all. So welcome to you. Here I am. Here, here you are. So um, very provocative conversation here that we're going to have uh, for a few reasons. Uh, Ryan Gennard, our guest, he is dialing in from the land down under. He's dialing in from Australia. So uh, we avoided the temptation of asking him how the weather is tomorrow since it's the afternoon for us and early morning for him. Uh, and uh, But Ryan's a, a fascinating cat. Uh, his second book is coming out shortly, and you're going to tell us a little bit about that. Uh, give us a, a little of a framing on this chat with Ryan. Sure. So, so Ryan, he'll, he'll take us through his story, but he, you know, he started growing up in England, moved to Australia, got started in government a little bit and moved to the United States. And now he's back in Australia and he's the founder of fundraise for Australia. And he, he's written two books and they, they follow a similar theme and we'll get into a, a lot of it in the episode here. But the first book was future philanthropy and the second book that's just about to come out is Nonprofit Moneyball, How to Build and Future-Proof Your Team for Big League Fundraising. And we didn't get into this in the episode, but just for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with the concept of Moneyball or haven't seen the movie starring Brad Pitt, I just wanted to unpack that a little bit. And it's all about um, in baseball in kind of the late 90s, the Oakland A's were a team that has the lowest payroll in the league and the, low, the least amount of resources. And they were just desperately looking for some sort of edge to keep up with the big league teams. And so they really lean, leaned into data and analytics and were the first to kind of figured out, figure out things like how many RBIs you got and what your batting average was, was less important than getting on base. And there was a correlation between getting on base and scoring runs and it's a whole a whole story behind that, and it's really fascinating. But the point of it is that they were able to think about it differently and bring in something that wasn't being done at the time. And that's really, to me, what Ryan's kind of getting at in his book. He's he's trying to think about fundraising differently. Yeah, you know, he he's going to say this. Uh, Ryan is positioning himself in the posture that I'm not thinking three years down the road, I'm trying to think 10 years down the road and work backwards. So, you know, describes himself uh, as a civic connector and fundraiser, but as someone that, that constantly thinks about the future of philanthropy, that's the name of his first book. And, uh, and so really interesting guy, uh, very interesting story and incredibly interesting approach to uh, connecting and trying to live out a life of service. And so, uh, you know, um, listen in for those things, for those cues, and, and definitely uh, would encourage our, uh, our audience to pre-order his book, to order it on Amazon. Uh, and so, yeah, so without further ado, here's Ryan Gennard on Group Thinkers. So, uh, our guest today is uh, is maybe I don't know Ryan. You might be our first global philanthropist, and I don't know if anyone's ever deemed you that. I'm deeming you that today. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it until we get to the end of the conversation. Then I'll uh, reflect. <laughs> and then we'll unpack it. Or just like, yeah. never mind. That guy doesn't know a lift about global <laughs> philanthropy. 
Ryan, uh, Ryan, you're joining us from Australia. Thanks for for making the time uh, as it is the morning time for you. It's the late afternoon as we're recording. And and I say global philanthropist because y- you have lived in uh, in in three very unique spaces, both physical spaces, but also like spaces and and points of time uh, with a philanthropic crossover into your physical location. Can you just unpack like your journey from the UK to Australia, to the US and and then back to Australia? Yeah, definitely. I'll try and make it as succinct as possible because uh, we we can definitely drag on this one. But uh, yeah, I was born uh, and raised in London um, in the 80s. Uh, It was a time where uh, Thatcherism was uh, kind of front and center and there was a lot of issues with the economy. Uh, my dad was a cleaner, mum was a nurse. So, uh, you know, we, we felt those unique pressures. Definitely uh, kind of uh, in the heart of the working class family, household, and kind of the, the town that we're in as well. Um, so that uh, growing up was interesting. It was kind of, uh, you know, my, my parents stayed together. So um, that that was great. But it was there was a distance because they were always working. Uh, we I've got three siblings as well. So being the eldest... Uh, you either kind of really rolled up your sleeves and get involved in family life and help your parents out, or you kind of are there drifting um, a bit. And I felt I was on the drifting side. Um, and then in 97, my mum got the opportunity to move to Australia and um, be the nurse manager of a, a private hospital up in North Queensland, which is like on the Great Barrier Reef, those tropical paradise things. But it was a very, very small uh, city, around 180,000. And it was a very, very big culture shock, as it were. Um, so, you know, just even going into my first day in the classroom, I, I remember two things. One, uh, I struggled with nosebleeds. So when it got hot, my nose would just kind of gush. So that was embarrassing from the start. And then two, um, there was someone told a student to sit down and he told him to F off. So I'm like, okay, culturally it's different as well. So there's going to take some adjusting. but Moving to Australia, it was a great opportunity to um, realign where I wanted to go and uh, kind of really take education seriously. Um, so I reckon if I was still in England, I'd be working, you know, nine to five factory job. And, you know, that's that's OK. And um, that definitely contributes to the economy. But uh, I believe it was a second chance. I kind of really leaned in and then uh, finished high school and then moved to Brisbane, which is the capital of Queensland. It's where the Olympics is going to be in 2032. So um, the kind of mid-tier city really evolving and then went to university there. I was the first of my family to go. So, um, again, kind of breaking through barriers through an early age, knowing that you could be anything you wanted to be. I got involved in the student union and was running that for a couple of years, got involved in politics and um, got to learn a lot um, in our federal parliament. But burnout, like I was really involved in our community. I started up a soccer team, which you'll, I guess we'll get on to kind of the sporting analogies on that yeah. soon. And it's now kind of one of the biggest clubs in the city. Um, I created it about 15 years ago. And uh, it's got like over 1,200 players from little kids up to kind of seniors. And uh, it's just, it was a community-based club, but there was a big flood in 2011. And I was just burnt out. Like it was, it was tough. Um, our district office kind of, um all uh, the phones were redirected to me so i had very difficult calls in the evening mm-hmm. after 
kind of slogging away, helping clean and recovery efforts. And I just decided to go travel Europe and met a girl in Rome and um, that kind of uh, dragged me over to the US and um, did the political jump, got involved in uh, one of the presidential campaigns and uh, was based in California and then never left. But uh, when you never leave and you're in politics and you're a foreigner, you can't get jobs. So um, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, she basically said, you're 30 years old, so you've got to stop knocking on strangers' doors, especially when they can't understand you. And that was kind of uh, one of those hacks uh, at my accent. But uh, she was right. And uh, luckily during the campaign, I met a few people that were involved in philanthropy. Obviously, that extension of being a funder and kind of uh, giving to the community. And um, they got me an interview at the San Diego Foundation, which is uh, about a billion-dollar endowment now. Um, and it was a stage where they wanted to do civic engagement. Um, and so I came in and led the Civic uh, Leadership Fund and then went on to lead the actual um, kind of civic engagement arm. And, yeah, just fell in love with philanthropy, to be honest. It was very refreshing going out to the community and saying, how can we help? And instead of canvassing votes to make sure you could help that in a legislative sense, it was about building resources. And it wasn't just a funding thing. Um, but I guess the, the MO for that Centre for Civic Engagement was to connect with the community that was changing so much. Like even during my time, it, um, San Diego changed from a um, majority um, white community to a majority um, people of colour. And so kind of seeing that transition was really interesting. And given I wasn't born there, I wasn't, uh, you know, even Australia during my formative years wasn't born there, kind of had a, a more curious and critical take on what the communities were and how they were being built up and how they could help and how I could be supportive in that rather than take the lead. Um, the great thing in philanthropy, I think, with growing up and probably one of the biggest take-homes is that I could be selfless and I could really be a connector and advocate on their behalf because I didn't have I didn't want anything in return. It was, uh, you know, I was kind of finding myself in the community. And, um, it, yeah, as I said, then became a, a student of philanthropy, jumped to a small nonprofit that worked with uh, students that were first of their families uh, to, go, to graduate high school, then go on to college. Um, a few of them were undocumented, uh, undocumented students. And uh, one, uh, they actually, this is the cool thing. There was actually a TV show made about the, um, the actual organisation because, a number of the students were actually going on to Ivy League schools um, and she actually, one of them went on to uh, represent the US in squash and uh, then got the pathway. Oh, no way. Yeah, she got a Gates Millennial Scholarship and now she's going to, uh, she went to Columbia and now is going to Harvard and she works for Goldman Sachs. And uh, it was on Apple TV on Little America. Uh, okay, right on. Yeah, so yeah. Definitely, definitely check that one out. So that takes you from, you know, so then you go from San Diego where you're working in community building and uh, and you actually step into a role in higher education. And then that takes you from San Diego to Austin. Uh, yeah. and so you had a short stint there. And so, you know, tell us a little bit about that pre-pandemic into pandemic time, uh, just, yeah. you know, 90 miles south of us here. It's, it's interesting how things go, right? Um, so we, obviously, living in San Diego is very expensive. And uh, I mean, the ripple effect of coming from a family that has not much and, um, you know, a very small family at that. And my wife has the same on her side. 
um, you know, sometimes you've got to move uh, in the best interests of your your family and um, your kids and give them everything that you didn't have. It's kind of like uh, I uh, hate using this in uh, kind of context involving me, but you know, standing on the shoulder of giants, like all the work that and sacrifices made beforehand, uh, kind of benefits uh, that next generation. So, yeah, we decided to move to Austin. Um, I'd spoken at South by Southwest uh, a few years before and we just became enamoured with the city. Um, just the kind of, uh, uh, there's just a real energy around it. And my wife is in technical recruiting, so there was a good space and she got relocated there. But alas, we moved three weeks before COVID happened. Um, so, um, you know, that kind of really accelerated our transition back to Australia because um, you know, going to one of the biggest universities and obviously um, going to where world-class fundraising ha- occurs and you've got the best of everything. You've got the gold standards in kind of CRM. You've got the gold standards in research and everyone is really motivated. I mean, they're going to end a campaign probably um, oversubscribing the $6 billion target, which is obscene, right, if you look at kind of the nonprofits that you come from. And it really kind of changed my Thinking. The reason being is because I ended up in the Department of Computer Science. And with COVID, I'm like, well, I'm not allowed to travel and meet with people. And this is before Zoom really matured a bit. So I was in that six months of going, you know, what do we do? How do we engage with donors? And so um, I didn't have a warm portfolio by any means. So I decided to invest in uh, my understanding of the subject matter just so I could be a better advocate um, when we got there. And started learning about machine learning and started learning about AI, even quantum computing. I took some courses on um, LinkedIn learning, Coursera and stuff. I just became fascinated by it. And I'm like, why uh, is the nonprofit space not utilizing these technologies? And uh, why is it being kind of that end of uh, cycle sales vertical uh, for organizations that um, you know, are really business focused? Like why, why aren't we working arm in arm uh, with folks? So, yeah, just started doing coding and uh, built a uh, peer-to-peer kind of platform, much like GoFundMe, but tried to gamify it so people would uh, could only fundraise after they uh, uh, developed a partnership or got enough points to unlock that ability. And, uh, yeah, then just started writing as well. And then it became quite cathartic because, um, you know, we got into a much better routine with our kids in terms of sleeping, so freed up a bit more time and, then, you know, within six months, future philanthropy really uh, kind of uh, w- was born, as it were, in terms of, of the book. And then for, you know, the 18 months that followed, you know, uh, we had developers, uh, big uh, kind of foundations, uh, regional associations of grant makers, impact investors, just uh, bombarding my inbox, wanting to have a chat and, um, you know, just seeing they found it was an interesting take looking 10 years into the future and deconstructing it rather than, um, you know, this is the tech now and let's uh, evolve with it. Because we always are in that mindset of, well, we're behind everyone else, let's catch up. And, um, yeah, it was just fun. And then it ended up winning international awards. And, uh, of course, uh, I thought that, oh, great, this is going to start a whole range of different things. But I kind of go, I kind of thought, where do I want this to go? And I'm like, I don't want it to go into consulting. I don't want to go and get like um, make the monetary kind of benefits that come from a book. I want it to actually spur more conversations and drive my own growth and uh, critical thinking and stuff. And uh, then just kept on writing and 
everyone really tapped into the non-profit moneyball thesis rather than tech thing. So again, it shows that it comes down to people, right? And um, yeah, that. Um, and then now we're back in Australia, but that's another chapter and one that we're still writing. Ryan, before we jump into that chapter of Australia, first of all, I'm always fascinated by what people did during their time of COVID. You know, there, there was downtime and we had free time and what people choose to do with it. For me, like this little Lego stadium back here took up a lot of my time. Uh, but you decided to invest and learn and uh, advance yourself in, in all of the sort of technology and AI like you were just talking about. I'm curious, as you were writing the book and Future Philanthropy and as you were talking to people and then after the book came out and you started having all those conversations, who were some of the people that kind of stood out to you as influencing you either to write the book or have influenced you since then? Um, who were who were some of the the people that have kind of shaped your thinking? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say the biggest one was Trista Harris, who was over at the Minnesota Council Foundation. She um, she wrote the book Future Good, and she came out um, to San Diego at a point where there was some evolution in the Regional Association of Grantmakers space. Uh, they were talking more about um, what philanthropy can be, rather than it being civic triage, seeding the solutions tomorrow. And she came out for a conference and was the keynote, and um, I was the chair of EPIP at the time, um, so Emerging Practitioners in Philanthropy, and um, she graciously gave us the night before to have a, a Q&A uh, for a, a very intimate audience, and then just started thinking, you know, what could be and what does uh, the future of the nonprofit sector look like? And, you know, it kind of... Um, was aided by my CEO at the time who just said, just lean into it. No one's talking about it. You know, if you if you want a VR um, kind of booth at the uh, next conference, let's do it. Let's really um, be future focused and let's, uh, you know, be our values. And we've just gone through a bit of a review of our mission, vision and values and they put future focused in. So Nancy Jameson was the CEO at that time. And, um, yeah, they're two of the people that really shaped my thinking and encouraged me to go into writing about it and kind of just ideating. But since the book came out, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, people um, there. There's Mark Hobbs, who's over at Unmetric in Canada. Um, there's Jim Drees, who's down in Austin, who uh, runs the AI um, fundraising company, Politics. Um, so he does a lot of work with UT. UT as well, obviously, John Goff, um, who leads their data analytics team. Uh, Brett Winkleman, who was chief of staff at um, the department uh, of the School of Computer Science, and also Zach Richards, who was the chief development officer for the College of Natural Sciences. Uh, given COVID was obviously yeah, kind of social distancing, you're still trying to find things, it led to a lot more conversations. It took away the busyness of being in the office and just kind of going, hey, uh, let's talk about advancing this. It's like, well, no, let's talk about what the pipeline looks like in three years, and let's be intentional about this time that we're kind of on our heels to come back out stronger uh, with more purposeful and let's build out cases for sports for stuff that we uh, didn't think was possible right now but obviously with the um, rapid uh, evolution of tech due to necessity of being able to kind of continue working and automating um, being remote uh, yeah just again fascinating and it's just people were willing to let me go down a path and um, you know, just give me pointers. Um, 
I think it's just a freedom to be open-minded and, and think towards the future we can have, not the one that's three years down the track because our strategic plan says so. I uh, I can't help but piece together. Is it, this is a this isn't intended to be a therapy session for me, Ryan. Just so that you know, but I can't help but piece together people's stories whenever we're having these conversations, and I'm seeing like this direct connection to uh, you as a firstborn, and you know the the role of the firstborn in terms of what that looks like of serving. Uh, maybe even reluctantly serving their younger siblings, but also the models of service that you had in your parents. Also, you know, from an early age of seeing people connected to things like nursing and what that looks like in serving others and how that winds you through a political realm into a space of serving in a larger civic uh, space in terms of community. And I find that to be truly fascinating that you know, you're you're on this uh, this train, and there's this winding that's happening that's drawing you to to who you are today, as you said, as a connector. So, where did nonprofit Moneyball, the thesis for applying uh, a sporting mindset and an avant-garde sporting mindset into the nonprofit sector, where was that seated in you? Yeah, definitely. I um, what I said, it was a, a random chapter in Future Philanthropy about how we kind of tool ourselves for tomorrow and how we bring new uh, ideas and thinking into the space and how the jobs of tomorrow in philanthropy um, are going to, yeah, we're going to have to find them from somewhere because we can't shoehorn a project manager in. Um, so I started, uh, you know, uh, kind of looking more at culture um, and Moving back to Australia, very much so, uh, fundraising is nowhere near like um, in the US. Uh, I used to say it's a decade behind, but it is where it is, right, because they don't have the vehicles. And um, obviously working for a university right now, um, I thought, okay, the transition is going to be, um, did it, like it's going to be a challenge, but, you know, people will understand, given the principles will get us there. But um, no, a lot of people were, uh, were reluctant to kind of move things forward because, um you know, they just have a different business model here. So um, my thinking really got to, was really, I guess, fueled by building my own team here and mm-hmm. there not being any talent. Like I had to find uh, three new uh, people who had skills in alumni relations and fundraising and you just do your normal searches and you get a candidate pool of like three to four and all of those are pivoting and uh, they, they just weren't suitable. So I'm like... I started actually thinking before back to when I wrote Nonprofit Moneyball and um, just started writing about it, you know, my frustrations and the potential of uh, identifying new people and understanding that AI is going to um, uproot so many um, industries and we're going to have to upskill people and a lot of people are going to have to come along to the services industry. So why not nonprofits? And especially with kind of uh, Gen Z um, and, you know, all of the subsequent ones after that, um, looking more at values-driven work um, and also building a career portfolio rather than just having a long career um, at a like a PwC or Goldman Sachs, right. um, that right. they will kind of traverse and, you know, maybe we take advantage of their talent for the two years that they want to uh, do that pivot and, um, you know, help them along the way in their own journey. So, yeah, just started uh, deconstructing stuff and I said my wife's a tech recruiter, so she kind of showed me the back end of, um, a few of the platforms she used and uh, LinkedIn, kind of the stuff that you pay for, a very good premium. 
and started doing kind of keyword searches and deconstructing in my mind what the qualities were. I started asking a few people what they believed the qualities were. And again, this goes to the great thing about LinkedIn, right? You can just throw something into the ether and people can respond and you can have a conversation and it gets you to where you need to be. So, yeah, I am, uh, Moneyball is a great movie. And uh, during, uh, I just decided to watch it again um, because that time from writing the first book to starting to put the framework to this book. And I started to see it in a whole different light. And I think that, and um, at the end of the book, I actually um, have a chat called Roll the Tape where I actually um, uh, pull out parts of the movie and how it relates to fundraising. And so talking about, I started seeing kind of, you know, uh, the fundraising kind of lead being the quarterback and um, in the grand scheme of things, you know, they, they're not the ones that make all the arts. They like, they execute the plays. Like the uh, game plan is drawn up by the coaches and uh, kind of the backroom staff. And that, that's really them doing kind of the strategic planning and what are the funding priorities. And, you know, the, um, the quarterback can score, like they can, um, they can get it over the line, but they're more often going to pass it off to the wide receivers, which could be uh, volunteers, um, you know, pass it to their running back, which could just be uh, the use of mail or um, um, automating uh, kind of various fundraising strategies that um, and yeah, just again, it just the anecdotes come very quickly. I'm very, I'm a sports administrator, so I love all the stats and looking forward to college football starting again. So when I wake up uh, here in Australia, I can kind of peruse the stats and see the Longhorns uh, flattered to see as always. Um, but yeah, it just it was a, na- a very easy book to write, to be honest. Um, so I'm dyslexic, so that's kind of uh, which leans on. Um, how I write and I have a very authentic writing style because it's basically a mosaic that I'm trying to kind of like mold in what I know I want it to be and um, I articulate the things I struggle to say by interviewing people that are doing great stuff in the space as well and emerging leaders Um, so yeah the thesis is pretty uh, simple at the end of the day right Um, you know the big uh, big big non-profits like UNICEF uh, like Cancer Council and stuff they have the money to employ the very best of fundraisers and uh, fundraisers, you know, in the US aren't uh, paid handsomely. So getting into those six-figure roles, um, you know, they, they jump into it and they kind of um, get recruited quite quickly. So, um, but non-profits that are doing the, the real work in the communities that, are, you know, trying to uh, hold on to that kind of community fabric and pull it back together um, and actually seeding some of the most innovative solutions to um, like homelessness um, to social dislocation, to like all the things that are going to have, we're going to be exacerbated through this ripple effect coming out of COVID. Um, you know, we should be doubling down on them. So I'm saying to them, you can have the best fundraisers out there. You just got to get out there, be um, be very intentional in who you recruit, and understand that people can come, can be a barista one day. Um, at Starbucks, start as a fundraiser the next day, and you can skill them up. And they have their ceiling is sky high. So, um, you know, it's just finding talent. And fundraisers really are it's personal skills. It's kind of the ability to storytell, the ability to sell. Um, so, kind of core selling comes into it, and it's just being able to make the ask and having a, st- a strategy around it. That's why I love I love um, recruiting marketers. I love recruiting. Um, political staffers um, because they know how to work hard and they know how to uh, sell a message to to people and convert hearts and minds. That's actually the question I was just about to ask you, Ryan, was 
I noticed in both books, there's a real focus on bringing in the right people in order to kind of spark that innovation and that evolution and building this team and changing a culture. So like, what should people be looking for? You just, you, you were just talking about storytellers, marketers. Is there, are there certain traits people should look for? Is it a communication ability? Is it, um, flexibility to learn new things? What, what sort of traits are the ones that yeah. we should go after? Yeah, I, I think really you've kind of outlined a lot of it. I think kind of we're starting to see a lot of work in uh, LQ now. So kind of that evolution from EQ, it's, um, you know, their ability to learn, to kind of adapt, to, to pivot. You know, I like to, uh, the reason why I learned so much in my time during COVID was I wanted to learn enough to be dangerous, as it were, like to connect the dots and to hold up that initial conversation. I don't need to be an expert in machine learning or AI. I bring the experts in the next thing. So again, the uh, it's all about strategy. It's a curiosity about the work. It's um you know kind of peeling that when you're actually given the funding priorities to peel back what it looks like from um you know a, a human level, like because you're trying to inspire these folks, and sometimes especially for research, it's quite binary. Like hey, fund this because uh, we're looking into uh, you know, solving X, right? Um, so it's, yeah, curiosity. It's the ability to hold a conversation. And really, when you're kind of looking for fit, it's really not the technical stuff. Um, so when I go to recruit, and it's kind of the recruiting process as well, I look for where my flaws are and I fill them and know that um, I can bring up their their weaknesses by doubling down their strengths, et cetera. Um, you know, we hired a, a person that has no fundraising experience here, and uh, he's just about to take a new fundraising, frontline fundraising job in the um, College of Medicine. And because we just let him go out and explore and ideate, and uh, again, you know, just have the conversations. And uh, a lot of people just, once they are able to handle rejection, um, you know, the ask becomes second nature. Again, evolution of a good conversation. And it's all just zeros at the end of the day. So, you know, as long as you can give them the strategy and, and the playbook, and this is what I hope encourages folks to do, is, um, yeah, just be more strategic around engagement and, and the asking. You'll, you'll get the rewards. I think there's something there also, Ryan, about uh, approaching your resource planning through a different lens like that's the you know that's ultimately the combination of billy bean and peter brand what they did is they looked at their problems and there was a traditional lens <laughs> which was the scouting methodology and then there was an alternate lens which yes it was through the use of analytics but too often people miss the point that the value that peter brand brought was a different analytic method for the each problem that they were trying to solve and uh and so you know there are two things that i want to encourage our our listeners when they you know two of the reasons why i love this book and uh this stood out to me is is one there's a whole chapter and section on the lack of strategic planning and thank you for saying that because i think that that's crucial it's not that we don't engage in strategic planning, but is it truly strategic? Uh, and then the second, there's a quote um, midway through the, the book, uh, some of the, la the latter chapters that 
Ryan, you said this, if we build the team and all they have are their traditional tools, which have become mired in the mediocrity of some small to medium nonprofit fundraising shops, then this book would have been for nothing. So yes, think about the problem and think about it strategically and how you're going to solve it. And then second, as you've said on, on our time today, upskill the heck out of them, right? Continue that process of leaning into their strengths so that you can move forward and so that we can get out of this trap of execution that we're seemingly caught in. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, they don't have to go to, you know, the big conferences. They don't need to go to AFP, ICON. They don't need to go to, like, any of the, the case higher ed ones that cost, like, $7,000 kind of all up. When I, I, I would much rather send them to South by Southwest and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, think about what could be and just be inspired by other things. Um, one thing I have uh, employed here is like once a quarter we'll uh, take the afternoon off and go do something complementary to our field. Um, so, you know, if we're looking at uh, raising uh, more scholarships for First Nations students, let's go on a, a tour that looks at kind of artifacts and let's kind of meet with uh, elders in those communities and learn more about it so we can be better advocates for them. Um, so, again, just let people's mind wander and you know <laughs> i let mine wander and i have now written a couple of books and it's helped me transition back to australia so um you know just be open to, to where it goes because the most dangerous thing right now is leaning into the status quo of fundraising because it's not getting uh, us the solutions we need and um you know we're just blaming e each other pretty much you know we're blaming the tools without you know leadership blaming the fundraisers and that's not what fundraising culture should look like uh, i mean we're all fundraisers at the end of the day, and the quicker we can instill that into a organisation, the better. Always, always lean on uh, kind of when JFK went to uh, Houston. So we're getting closer to Dallas. So uh, we've been Austin and now Houston. When he went to NASA, right, and he asked uh, one of the janitors there, what, "What's your role here?" and he said, "I help fly people to the moon." And that's just a powerful kind of. Uh, yeah, anecdote to everything we do. Um, and it'd be great if the um, receptionist could go, when someone comes in and goes, uh, hey, I'd like to make a gift, that they can have a conversation in that moment. They don't stress out and feel they have to get a fundraiser. And it's just an ever, like it's an evolution, right? So even when you jump onto the website, you can be talking to a chatbot that can answer all the questions. And then when it gets to something that um, is a bit more nuanced, then they can, um, you know, be uh, transferred live to a fundraiser who's sitting on their computer. Um, you know, there's so much we can do and we just got to be brave. And I love how you, the quote you used about Peter, because at the end of the day, he did bring something different, but it was leadership who backed him, who backed him to go, well, it's not working. So how do we really compete? And, you know, I want people to win and winning isn't a kind of sporting thing here. Winning is, you know, uh, giving food to, um, someone that is, uh, you know, going hungry. It's like kind of tackling poverty head on. It's, you know, philanthropy can see the solutions. And that's kind of, I feel I'm getting more back into government because systems change only comes from changing the laws. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't uh, inform that. And that's why, I mean, higher ed fundraising, that research can really kind of uh, move the needle of the society on, on that. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. So the book, Nonprofit Moneyball, uh, how to build and future-proof your team for big, laid, big league fundraising. It is on pre-order now. You can get uh, a pre-order on Amazon and other places. Uh, and so would encourage our listeners to uh, 
uh, dive in and pre-order that. Future Philanthropy is available, so you can get both of those. And so, um, Ryan Gennard, what we really appreciate, man, is that you're uh, you're being brave right now and stepping up and saying these things. We agree with you and, and want to affirm you in saying those. And uh, and even though we now find ourselves on opposite sides of the earth, uh, that we align in, in so much of the way that we think. And so thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a part of uh, this time here today. No, thanks for amplifying voices like ours. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of me's out there. So uh, let's listen to them. Right on, man. Right on. Thanks for uh, thanks for being here. We certainly appreciate it. All right, thanks, guys. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, including how you can partner with RKD to accelerate growth for your fundraising and nonprofit marketing needs, visit rkdgroup.com.